When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. We remember that this whole year in dealing with the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to be reminding you that Matthew has in front of him, as he writes, the scroll of Mark. Mark's Gospel is the briefest, it is the oldest, and he sometimes uses entire sentences from Mark without changing a single word. He has in front of him the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures, after more of them could speak, read, and write Greek than they could Hebrew after the time of Alexander the Great. And he has in front of him what the German scholars called the quella, the source, it was a scroll of teachings, nothing but teachings, scholars believe. Matthew and Luke make extensive use of it, not in the same ways. Matthew groups large bodies of it together. He calls the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke disperses those same teachings among various events, happenings, contexts in his gospel. But they've had a common document because they sometimes have whole paragraphs that they do not differ even one word in Greek. So obviously they're copying something here uh, to get it that precise. So Matthew sees in the Septuagint this recurring phrase, and he went up onto the mountain, and he went up onto the mountain, and he went up onto the mountain, and the person described there is Moses. Moses went up onto the mountain tending sheep, and he saw a bush on fire. Moses went up onto the mountain, and God helped him hammer out ten commandments on two stone tablets. Moses went up onto another mountain, and he saw the kingdoms of the world, but was told by God, you will not cross the river. You will die here, and he died. So as Moses was under threat of death when he was a baby, so was Jesus under threat of death when he was a baby, like Moses. And as Moses went up the mountain to receive special revelation of God, Jesus goes up the mountain to dispense with all this wonderful word from God we call the Sermon on the Mount. Like good, revered rabbis of his time, when his disciples, his learners, had come to him, he sat down and taught them. And the first word of each of these next verses is the word in Greek, makarios. It is most often translated as blessed. A few years ago, one of the more modern translations, uh, striving for readability more than accuracy, translated it happy. The reason happy is not a good choice is that the opposite of makarios is not unhappy. The opposite is cursed. So the word is blessed. Uh, one of the scholars I read this week, Dr. Eugene Boring, said in Hebrew it would be shalom. In Greek it would be 
salvation, which means not only what happens to you after you die, but what happens to you in this life. You are made whole. You are saved from a fragmented life to a whole and meaningful and purposeful life. So it is saying, shalomed are you, that is, you've been given well-being by Almighty God if you are one of these nine things being described here. One of these people here being described. You are shalomed. You are saved, if you would, if these things be true. But then Dr. F.W. Bear in his commentary says, but don't be deceived here. Jesus is not speaking to nine different groups of people, letting them pick and choose. Oh, I can do number two. I can be number four. You can be number seven. No, he expects all of them to be all nine of these. All nine of these things, you and I, are supposed to be if we are, in fact, followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a look. Blessed, shalomed, saved are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke says, Jesus just said, poor. Blessed are the poor. And not only did he say poor, he used a very specific word spelled P-T-O-C-H-O-S, ptokos it is. And it doesn't refer only to people who are poor, but people who are beggars. Let me give you a difference here. In Jesus' time, there were many poor people. We would have called the area where he lived a third world country by today's jargon. Only 2 to 3 percent of people in the rural areas could read and write. 97 to 98% could not read nor write in the rural areas. Many of them lived one day at a time. Men went to the marketplace in the morning hoping someone would ask them to pick beans, to tend sheep, to milk cows, to carry some heavy load from one place to another, to pick grapes, And if they worked hard all day, they were given a coin, one denarius. And they could go to the market and buy enough bread, milk, for their family that night. Most often there was not enough for breakfast the next morning, not enough for lunch that day. But if the father was hired and worked hard all day, he got one denarius and his family would eat one more time that night. Yet this word is more extreme than that. This word refers to someone either who was not hired or is physically unable to be hired, unable to work, and must sit by the gate of the city and beg. Those who know they are absolutely dependent upon the goodness of another. And Jesus says, that's who you are supposed to be in your heart. One who knows herself, himself, absolutely dependent upon the benevolence of God. We cannot do for ourselves, we cannot do for each other what God alone can do for us. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And certainly Jesus would have been concerned about those who've had death, those who've lost someone they love. But again, the scholars say he probably is not addressing that in this verse. Instead, he's probably addressing those who mourn because the kingdom is not yet realized. 
God's will is not yet done here on earth as it is in heaven. We mourn the human condition that there is so much hurt and pain and illness and death among all God's children that we mourn. We mourn that the kingdom has not come. Right now there are lots of different award dinners where movies of last year are being awarded. One category is called documentaries. There was one documentary that's been nominated for several of these awards that's about the children of the Sudan who survived the violence that claimed their mothers and fathers. At one time, it was estimated by the United Nations Committee on Relief that there were as many as 25,000 children roaming through Sudan without a parent. No mother, no father, no aunt, uncle, cousin, no grandparent to look after them. 25,000 kids. And this documentary follows a number of them to find out what has happened. And the conclusion is you can take the child out of the country. You cannot take the sorrow out of the child. You cannot take away the deep hurt of their loss. I think Jesus is addressing that kind of mourning here. That we mourn that in this world there is still so much hurt and pain when the kingdom is ready. That God is ready to rule. But it has to be in willing hearts. That's the way he's willed it. Number three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this is an interesting word. Dr. Eugene Boring, who teaches down at Bright Seminary at TCU in Fort Worth, in his commentary says, in this context, the word meekness really means the same as poor in spirit. I was taught many years ago that this word for meekness here has something to do with bridled, like a horse, like a wild stallion that's now been broken enough that, that this horse can be guided, can be directed. We sometimes use the word tamed or domesticated. One who conforms to the left and right, left and right of the rider. A few weeks ago, I went to eat lunch with our downtown clergy group. Uh, we visit each other's church one each month, and our good friend, Father Bill Christ, over at the Greek Orthodox Church was our host, and when we go to his place once a year, he cooks himself, and it's always wonderful. So I got there early. I was the first one there, just a little bit early, and uh, so I was looking around in the foyer. Father Chris was back in the kitchen working hard, and in walked Dr. George McCutcheon. He's one of my favorite ministers in all of our city. Uh, Dr. McCutcheon has pastored a predominantly African-American Baptist church uh, just on the north side of the city almost twice as long as I've been here. I said, well, doctor, how are you feeling this morning? He said, I'm feeling pretty well to have a big birthday coming up in March. I said, you willing to talk about which one it is? He said, yeah, I'll be 80 in March. And God's finally led me to believe maybe this is the time I should retire. So this year, when I'm 80 years old, I think I'm going to retire. I said, well, how'd Christmas go for you? Did Santa Claus come to see you? Oh, yeah, he said, oh, Santa came by. I said, did you get everything you wanted? And he smiled and said, you know, my mother taught me when I was a boy, if you don't get what you wanted, you should want what you got. And he said, I sort of learned that's true about the Lord. 
I ask Him for a lot of things. And sometimes I get yeses and sometimes I don't get yeses. But I've learned that if I don't get what I want, I should want what I got. I think that's meekness. I think that's meekness. And those kind of folks inherit the earth, Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now stop again. I think this verse is difficult for you and me because most of us are never really hungry. If we've been four hours since a meal, we think we're hungry, but we don't know real hunger, the kind Jesus was addressing. You think about it. One breadwinner who has no regular job, who goes every morning early hoping someone will choose him to work that day. If he's chosen, the family will eat before bedtime. They probably will not eat again until the next evening at bedtime. And if he is not chosen, they will not eat for another 24 hours. Another 24 hours. How hungry have you been? How thirsty? When you go south of Jerusalem, you're almost immediately in desert. And I remember the first time we were in Israel, and our guide told us one night before all of us went to our rooms and to bed, I'm going to have you waked up earlier in the morning because we're going south down to Masada on the Dead Sea. And he said, you get up, have a breakfast, get on the bus. We want to get there before it's too hot. Tomorrow, he said, just after lunch, it'll probably be 112 degrees down at Masada. So when I tell you tomorrow to drink, drink. Every time I tell you to drink water, drink water. And the next morning, we all had breakfast. We got on the bus, and we went south down to the Dead Sea and up the cable car to the top of Masada, and the sun was really beating down on us. There are no trees down there. It is true desert. And all of a sudden, he would say to us, get a drink of water. There were big wooden barrels up there on the top of Masada get a drink of water. And he would show us some more things, maybe 30, 45 minutes. Get a drink of water. I'm not saying anything else, but all of you get a drink of water. Now, when you've been in the desert and you've had not enough water, then maybe you can understand better those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is dikaiosune. It, it means right standing. When you want to stand right with God more than anything else in all the world, you hunger for it, you thirst for it, to stand right with God. The Bible is very clear that the only way we stand right with God is to trust that we have the goodness of God just because that's who God is and we received His gift. We call it grace. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's most often called Chesed, the never-failing, constant, abiding love of God. It's given to you. Will you open the door and receive your gift of God? If you trust that God does so want good to come to you, and you receive His gift, then you stand right with God. And then He says, now I want you to stand right with everybody else. At your house, where you work, places you go, people with whom you eat, people with whom you don't want to eat, 
Are you willing to put yourself out for the well-being of another? Your neighbor, Jesus said you can start there. The word neighbor means near you. It's from a German word for us, Negavur, the one nearest you. Start with the one nearest you. Will you put yourself out for that one's well-being? For that one's well-being? If you hunger and thirst for right standing between you and God and between you and others, then that's the only way to get that done. You trust God and you put yourself out for the well-being of another. He mentions then merciful. We know this wonderful word when we get more than we deserve. And now when we're willing to give more than someone else deserves, more of ourselves, more of our resources, whatever it may be when we show mercy. There's one called pure in heart. One of the scholars, Dr. Robert Gundry, said, we often see this pure in heart and we think that means never have an unkind thought, never have a thought that isn't perfectly wonderful and right. Uh, Dr. Gundry said, that's not what this means. Pure in heart is describing the same thing that Jesus does when he talks about having one eye. If one of your eyes offends you, pluck it out so that you just look through one eye as if one is aiming aiming a weapon, gun or whatever, looking at the target with one eye, not distorted, looking carefully with one. I'll give you an example. Two months ago, in November, the Zogby poll, in cooperation with the American Bible Society, asked people how they liked the programs that are on television. Eighty-five percent of the people in America who responded to their poll said, we want less violence, we want less sex, we want more biblical values. That same week, Nielsen recorded what people were watching. Number one rated show that week, Desperate Housewives. Number two, CSI Miami. Number three, Grey's Anatomy. Number four, Criminal Minds. Number five, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And then Two and a Half Men, which is Charlie Sheen's life story. It's how many women you can sleep with in as short a period of time as possible after you've had more than too much to drink. It's really funny. It's really vile. All at the same time. Pure in heart means that what you say you want is what you really do want. Uh, what you say you believe is the way you really live. And then he goes on with peacemakers. If you want peace at your house, are you willing to work for peace? If you want peace in our city, are you willing to be one who works for peace? If you want peace in the world, are you one who's willing to work actively for peace? Jesus said it's important. Are you persecuted for righteousness' sake? This comes rarely to you and me, I think. Persecution? I got one nasty phone call a few months ago when we unveiled the statue out here of a Christian girl, a Jewish boy, a Muslim boy. I got a telephone call right after that big article appeared in the paper. A preacher identified himself, said, I want to come see you. I said, no, I don't think I want to see you. He said, why not? I said, I've been in Tulsa 27 years, and you've been here about 20 years, and you've never wanted to see me before. I believe you want to see me because of that article in the paper last week. He said, that's right. I said, well, I think you and I would be wasting our time because you're not about to change your mind, and I can assure you I'm not about to change mine. And he said, well, let me tell you what I'm about to do. I'm about to take out an ad in the newspaper here in Tulsa and tell everybody that you are going to hell. 
I said, really? He said, yep. I'm going to tell everybody that Muzan Biggs is going to hell for letting Jews and Muslims believe they may not be. And I said, well, you'll just have to put in the paper whatever you can afford, my brother, because what I'm saying is I don't believe God revokes covenants that he's made with anybody. He didn't take out his head in the Tulsa world. He probably found that was a little expensive, but he did take out one in one of the neighborhood papers here. I didn't see it till someone was kind enough to bring me a copy. And surely enough, he was saying, Muzan Biggs is going to hell because he's letting other people think they are not going to hell. So occasionally we have a few of those, but not so many. Most of us are not persecuted for what we believe is right. But Jesus ends this portion by saying, Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad because... This is what the kingdom looks like. If all nine of these things are somehow present in you, you can be sure you're blessed. You're a part of the kingdom of God. There's a preacher down in Nacogdoches, Texas, which is not far from my hometown. Uh, His name is uh, Joel Childress. And he's begun to do some writing. And recently he was writing about his years now at a church in Nacogdoches. He said there was a lawyer who came to Nacogdoches right out of law school. And he said this fellow was one of the most surly, nasty sort of people you'd ever meet. He was one of those people that claimed to love humanity, just didn't like people. Uh, He was a civil rights attorney. He advertised himself. He was constantly going around to every business in Nacogdoches trying to find out if they had mistreated anybody at all. And, of course, he went to the people who felt they'd been mistreated and asked them to let him file lawsuits. So all the businesses were suspect of him. Then he took on school districts and police forces and firemen and everybody. You think your fire department's not treating you well? I'll take care of that for you. And so he was not a beloved man in Nacogdoches, Texas. And then this preacher said one Sunday morning he stood up to preach and there was this lawyer sitting in his church. He didn't know what he was looking for. Gee, I hope he's not talking to one of our custodians, to our chef here, that maybe they felt they've been mistreated, not adequately compensated in some way. But the next Sunday, that attorney was back again, and the next Sunday he was there again. And Brother Childress called him. And the man said, Well, my father was dying. He has died now. And the last conversation I had with him, I said, Dad, is there anything in the world I can do for you? And he said, you're serious about asking that question? I'm serious. And he said, for the next 52 weeks, I would like for you to go to church. Try it. 52 weeks. So I've been with you three weeks, the lawyer said. And Brother Childress said, I hope you'll be back next Sunday. And he said, I will. And he came 52 consecutive Sundays. Childress said that a lawyer in his church was having lunch with this lawyer and several others one day and a waitress, an older woman who had worked at this place forever came over to the table and was waiting on them and this surly attorney said something really kind and thoughtful to her and when she had walked away one of the other attorneys said what's going on here? I've never heard you say anything like that to anybody since I've known you and he said Quietly, I'm a Christian. 